Now it is a good morning, and uh, just wanted to <clears throat> give a quick shout out to all the fathers and dads in this in our church this morning, and just uh, want to make it known today it's Father's Day, and uh, fathers, you are to be commended and uh, very thankful uh, to the fathers, especially in this congregation, who do everything in their power to live upright lives and godly lives and be a good example, a good testimony in front of the church to their children, to their wives. Um, as many of you know, that's the hardest battle we, we, as men, we could all agree, is our hardest battle is in those spheres, right, of being dads and uh, being husbands and all these things. And you know, quite rightfully so, because it points out in Scripture, these are the qualifications of elders and deacons or whatever, is that these areas of our lives have to be in order. And I think the Lord put that in there on purpose, because those are great measuring gauges uh, against our hypocrisy, right? But very grateful uh, for all of you, all the fathers. A couple other just really quick shout-outs. I don't want to take a bunch of time this morning, but <clears throat> I'd like to shout-out to all those who are uh, getting the church ready to go in the morning. <clears throat> you get early in the morning. Um, you get everything set up. I know it is hard work. And uh, a lot of love and care, getting up early on Sunday and stuff. So uh, I appreciate all your help in doing all that. It, it's, it doesn't go unnoticed. And, we are we are very very grateful. I'd like to give a shout out to Brett back there for picking up uh, the ta- the Bible studies when he does last minute, able to put together a very phenomenal Bible study for everybody. So thank you for your service and doing that as well. Very grateful. Uh, for doing and the worship teams, you guys all do such a great job with worship. And I just wanted to make that known because sometimes those things get kicked in the cracks and they're never brought up. And then, I know, I mean, no one needs a pat on the back, but the reality is it's nice to uh, be encouraged when you're, when you're doing things. Uh, and Ashley as well with the bulletins and all of that. I mean, there's just so much that goes on here. And Carly, shout out to you as well that you're healthy, the baby's healthy, you've got a good report, praise God for that. Uh, we're all praying for you. Well, I think, uh, I couldn't tell you, this, this church is excited about, about, the, about Liam coming into this world. So we love you very much, we're, and we're praying for you and Sean at this time as well. So turn your Bibles if you would today. We're going to go to the New Testament today. <clears throat> we're going to go to the uh, book of James. The book of James. We're just going to be going over the first four verses, which really, I think, in essence, covers the entire uh, book of James, really in a nutshell. But these verses, are I really want to focus on these today uh, and just really dealing with um, the process that God takes His people through uh, in order to bring them to maturity. And a lot of things today, you guys would probably all admit that this is true, that one of the major things that we're, that I see, at least from my perspective in the church today, is a lot of immaturity. Um, and what it is, it amounts to is that I think there's a lot of circumnavigating around the, uh, you know, God's ordained way to mold us and to shape us through pain and tribulation, suffering, rejection, you know, just this whole idea of how God designs things for our good. And if we don't understand this, we don't have a comprehension of how God works to shape and mold us, we may lose it and we may drift off into a worldly mindset and operate around this mindset every time suffering or something comes into our lives. Um, 
we, we fall into our default, and that's really from a worldly mindset. James uh, chapter 1, 1 through 4 reads this. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces what? Patience. But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete and lacking nothing. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for this morning once again. Lord, we commit this service into your hands. Commit this, commit this message into your hands, Lord. Um, and just thank you uh, for your enablement. Lord, I could do nothing without you. Open the hearts of your people. Lord, give them eyes to be able to see Christ high and lifted up. Give them ears to hear the word that's being preached. Not just my voice, but Lord God, that they would hear the voice of God uh, through his word. Father, speak to them today that we could all grow in grace and we can mature, Lord, that we can be more useful and more fruitful in the kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Speaking about one father in particular, as we start out this message this morning, um, it was on April 20th, 1938, um, at the death camp called Buchen, Buchenwald. Uh, in honor of Hitler's 49th birthday. The prisoners were ordered to remove their berets and venerate the Nazi swastika flag. They all did it as they were ordered, except one man. His name was Paul Schneider. Paul Schneider's name was changed from Pastor Schneider to Prisoner Schneider due to the fact that his sermons contained references on how the Bible in Nazism were in total disagreement. He was ripped away from his wife and six children and thrown into a nasty death camp where he would eventually die as a martyr. That day, being Hitler's birthday, he would not bow to Germany's idol. For this, he was viciously struck 25 times with an oxide whip. His bleeding body was left in solitary confinement for 15 Months. It's a long time. And by the way, his cell was only four feet wide and ten feet long. There was no furniture, no lights, and he was only given a small amount of bread and water daily. He was not even allowed his Bible. Before long, he became nothing more than a broken skeleton. His clothes became rags, and his body crawled with vermin. On Sunday morning, the 28th of August, 1938, Paul Schneider preached through the bars of his cell to men who were lined up for the 0630 roll call. Survivors recorded that he cried out from his cell. He said, Our Lord Jesus Christ came into the world to save us from our sins. If we have faith in Him, we need not fear what man may do to us. After a few minutes of his preaching, guards rushed into his cell pulled him away from the bars of the window and beat him almost to death. A guard said to him, Listen, if we released you today, what would you do? His answer, Paul replied through broken teeth and a shattered face with a boldness that could only have been wrought by God. And he said, I would go to the nearest town and the first curbstone would become a pulpit from which I would denounce the brutal crimes committed here. 
For saying that, he was then suspended by his wrist from the window bars with his feet hanging off the floor for hours until he lost consciousness. Every time he preached from his bunker, his tortures increased. But his faith, it was said, in the Lord increased. When a friend approached Schneider and told him to quiet down or he was going to be killed, his reply was simple. Somebody has to preach God's Word in this hell. Somebody's got to preach God's Word in this hell. Which became more important than his life. Finally on the 18th of July, 1939, Paul Schneider, starved, beaten, and bleeding, fell asleep in the Lord. Paul was 41 years old. There's something mysteriously embedded within the Christian faith, a transforming principle that exists solely designed by God to shape and mold us into a fully mature believer. And that principle is primary to our maturity. And that principle is suffering. It's never my intentions to really just preach on revolving the sermon all around suffering. But I do want to focus on this reality as it connects to our sanctification and our growth into maturity. Without, it, we, we, without, without this particular component in our lives, we do all, if all we do is avoid these things, we remain in what would be called an infant stage, never reaching the place in our Christian life where we are the most fruitful and the most useful. Avoiding pain will only retard our growth. And instead of producing a humble and bold and mature Christian, we are nothing more than immature, complaining, childish, weak believers. And there's nothing that can pollute a church more than a bunch of childish, professing believers. Is that the truth? When life beats us to a pulp, and our adversaries increase their attacks, instead of sinking underneath despair, the Christian faith rises up and our faith increases. When we're challenged, when we're struck down, when the pressure's upon us, we multiply. We get stronger. We rise up in these things other than shrink into hopelessness. The title of this message this morning, if I could give it a title, it would be God's Prescription for Christian Maturity. God's Prescription for Christian Maturity. I want to endeavor to look at these passages this morning from the book of James, which outlines the process by which God uses to transform His people. If we are not conscious of God's design for our lives, we may find ourselves traveling down the wrong path, causing preventable problems in our own lives, and on top of this, the lives of others. See, our maturity just doesn't affect us. It affects others. It affects your spouse. It affects your children. It affects the church. It affects your work relationships. I like what uh, 1 Peter 4.12 says. He says this, Beloved, think it not strange. Think it not strange. He's addressing this right here. 
by saying this shouldn't be strange to us. And a lot of us, when we have pain or things come into our life, I mean, God forbid sudden tragedies. Many times we find ourselves saying, you know, I, I don't understand why God would do this. You know, or why me, or this, or this, or that. I get all that. It does make sense in our humanity. But Peter's saying, listen, don't think it's strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you as though some strange thing happened to you. This is the life of a Christian. But he says, rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings. That when his glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceedingly joy. Pointing to this reality that this pain, these sudden tragedies, these crises that come into our lives will produce at some point, not at the very moment, but it will produce a pleasure that we cannot define probably in our human language what is to come. I don't know about you guys, but I've been through some pretty tough stuff at times, and I know all of you have as well. But I can, you could probably all testify to this, right? Those moments when you were tried, and you were in pain, and you looked to Christ during it all, and you came out of it, you're better prepared not only to serve, serve others, serve the church, be a blessing to God, but it's just what it does also to your person and your inward integrity. Because you grow through those things. They're not by accident that these things come upon us. But they're there for the specific reason, as James says, for our growth into maturity. Philippians 1.29, Paul cried out, he said, For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in Him, right? It goes beyond that. But also what? To suffer for him and if we could see ourselves in that frame in that moment when you're just about ready to break and go to the default system of the world if you just take that moment for just one moment and recognize this reality and rejoice in the reality that it has been granted on behalf of Christ himself that we're not only to believe in him but we are also to suffer for him Philippians 1.6, he says, Be confident of this, that he who has begun a good work in you, who started all of this, whether it makes sense or not, whether it feels good or not, whether it's confusing or chaotic or painful or tragic, and you just feel like you just can't do this anymore, understand this principle. Understand this verse. Being confident of this. You can be confident in this. Not kind of confident, not somewhat confident, not shaky on this, but the Word of God says that you can be confident in this, that He who has begun a good work in you will carry it on to completion under the day of Christ Jesus. He will do it. He's the author and the finisher of it all. I know it's very difficult, and I'm not standing up here like an idiot telling everybody, yeah, when you're in the midst of that horrible pain, that you're just going to think biblically through it perfectly. It's not true. That's why we wrestle with these things. But we have to reason with ourselves and use logic in the way that we think in order to help us be able to get through some of this stuff. Philippians 3.10 says, I want you to know Christ and the power of His resurrection. And then he goes on to say this, and the fellowship of what? His sufferings. How do we fellowship with Christ? In sufferings. 
I'll tell you something, and I, like I said, I never want to use all my own examples of my own life. That can be a little redundant and ridiculous, but it's true. You know, it really is true is that some of the greatest fellowship I've ever had with the Lord is when I've been in pain, or I've been suffering, or I've been miserable, or I've just been hurt. And some of the greatest times that I've been with the Lord is when I just don't have anything else to run to except Him. And I find that it is the most flourishing feeling, even though I'm in the most painful predicament, God is there. And we are what? Why does He do this? Well, Paul said to be conformed to the image of His death. Conformed to Him in His death, and so somehow to attain the resurrection from the dead. The book of James is addressed you know, to uh, Jewish believers uh, that were scattered by persecution. This most likely refers to those in Acts chapter 8, 1 through 4. Uh, it says the word scattered, which means, like the illustration is here, is to sow as seed. As, as is the word used in Acts 8, 1 and 4, and chapter 11 and 19, 11 verse 19, God sows the church by what? Persecution. And the church sows the gospel. I think it was Tertullian who said that the blood of the the, the, the blood of the seed of the church is the blood of the martyrs. You know, it's it's this idea that persecuted people spread the gospel. They don't hide the gospel. And that's why persecution's good. Like, I don't want to be persecuted. No one wants to be persecuted. But in God's world, in his perspective, persecution's good because it causes us to be more of what God's called us to be. It does those things that comfort won't do. The lazy boy just won't do it. But these uncomfortable things in your life push you out to do the things. The recipients, he's talking, he's saying, my brethren, fellow believers, these are the multitude which were scattered by persecution after the death of Stephen. Interestingly enough, James is actually the half-brother of Christ the half-brother of Jesus. But he does not open the letter bragging about it. He actually refers to himself as a bondservant, which really would be slave, doulos, which is really de- harsher words than what you would see a bondservant. He's actually saying, I am a slave to the Lord Jesus Christ, is what he says. And that's powerful. That gives you an indication on his view of his brother half-brother, right? He was my Lord, my Savior, my God. He's not even dealing with that reality. He's not taking advantage of his audience. He's going right there. The overarching theme of James is to endure suffering by faith. Verses 1, 2 through uh, 18. The theme that we have seen as believers is we should meet our trials uh, we're not going all the way to 18, but the, the, it's relevant because it really deals with the same point with saying that we as believers should meet our trials and temptations with faith and wisdom. And we might say that faith receives the Word of God in humility and wisdom applies the Word of God to the situations of our daily life. I believe when James wrote this book, he had in mind those Christians who were being persecuted, experiencing famine under tremendous, tremendous adversity. But in whom the Bible says, what did they do when they're under adversity? They went everywhere and preached the word. It's interesting. I mean, I just it's just interesting in Scripture. Wherever you see like persecution, you see fruitfulness. Whenever time you see suffering, you usually see out of that 
is is productivity. You know, every time you see laziness or slothfulness or someone being idle or always at ease in Zion, you don't really see any fruitfulness. You don't see any productivity. You just see, I'll tell you one thing, the less you do, the less you want to do. You ever notice that? When your schedule's so full, for whatever reason, you can seem to find to do more. There's just something about that principle when you get into the, 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 the slob to spawn and you just lose your heart to, 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 to work or labor, you just don't want to do anything. I testify to that. There's times where I'll have, you know, like a day off from work. And I don't, I don't start the day off being productive. And the whole day is just a relentless pursuit of laziness. Which, it happens. This is why... Um, this is why pain's good, because pain pushes us out and causes us to do things that probably we may not have ever done before. It also causes us to reach out to the hurting, to bear one another's burdens. You know, this pain, you went through a very severe time in your life, you've come out of that. Well, let's just hope by God's grace, you use your pain as a means to reach out to other people that are hurting. We see a similar reminder in 2 Timothy chapter 4, 5, where Paul encourages young Timothy with a solemn reminder. He says this, But you, be sober in all things. And then he says, endure. This means a continual, um, you're underneath the pressure consistently for a duration. Endure hardship. Then what happens following that? Do the work of evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. But it didn't come before this. It come hardship was actually the precursor bringing him in to the work of an evangelist and the fulfilling of his ministry. This is why it's so important that people that are put in ministry, not that they have to have some major crisis in their life, but they have to have the understanding that you know God has ordained these things to come into our lives. And it's always better to pull somebody in who has been through things, who's had hard times, who's had crises in their lives. To be able to have more what? Stability. See, the instability where James talks about unstable man, is talking about a very immature person that doesn't have, it just hasn't grown. Even in the arguing about meat sacrificed to idols, and Paul's going back with an immature believer. It's not just because he doesn't want the immature believer to fall into sin, but the immature uh, believer has an overarching zealousness that isn't always grounded in truth. So every little thing you do wrong, they're going to find out what it is. Kind of like the cage stage, right? When a reformed person's in a cage stage, they nitpick everybody to death, right? Over things that, because they're, they're immature. I'm not saying that we, we outgrow sin, but the reality is some of these things aren't sin, but to sometimes to a new convert or a, some of their, their zealousness goes beyond their, um, their maturity. And that's where the problem exists. Looking at our verses this morning, I'll try to go through these quick, quickly. Um, there's three points to consider this morning. Um, number one is understanding God's perspective versus our own. Understanding God's perspective versus our own. Number two, knowing the Word of God instead of acting like the world. And then number three, embracing the process. Embracing the process, which sometimes can be one of the most challenging things to do. Let's look at the, the, the starting here. Understanding God's perspective versus our own. He says, My brethren, count it 
This is a count it all joy when you fall into various trials. Count what all joy? It, he says. So that you could place almost anything in there. He says, count it all joy. What? Whatever you're going through. Whatever you're going through at this point in your life, brothers and sisters. Whatever you're going through. I don't know what you're going through, but I do know, if you're like the rest of us, there are some things that you're going through. And there may be some of you here today that are going through some very, 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 very difficult times. Even difficult even coming in here and worshiping with the brothers and sisters. Maybe your, your things have happened to you in such a way where you're going through a major struggle. And Scripture tells us to, to count it. Uh, whatever you're going through, count it all joy. Uh, when you fall into various trials. I'd like to, to clarify something here. And it's not falling into sin either. Is what he's talking about. He's counting all joy. Whatever type of suffering. Whatever's going on. It's just not, you know. This is an allowance for... for uh, he isn't justifying sin. Oh yeah, you fall into sin. Just count it all joy. You know, no, we should repent of our sin. shouldn't be joyful. It should be convicting and crushing and causing us to, to turn away from it. The writer is not to be understood as, a mean, as meaning that these trials are joyful in themselves, by the way, but that as a means to beneficial results that are to be rejoiced in. It is the same thought as is contained in Hebrews 12.11. For the moment, all discipline seems to be pleasant but painful. Yet to those who have been trained, hear that now, this is what we're doing this morning, those who have been trained by it, afterward, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. You're being trained by your sufferings. You're being trained by your pain. You're being trained by your discontent. Okay? You're being trained by these things. And the more training we have, the more mature and experienced we're going to be. You can tell when you're around an experienced Christian. You can tell you've been around someone who has some weight and has built some metal in their life. You can just tell the way that they deal with people, the way that they deal with problems, the way they deal with things. Is, is, it's impressive to be around men or women who have grown to such a stature where their godliness just shines what they do. But it's equally, it's, it's, it's obnoxious and it's horrible when you're around immature people that are immature. They never grow and they're constantly creating problems, irritations, foolishness. And it's just like they're like grown babies. Um, and we got to make sure that we are not in that group. Or if we are, we need to look to what God would have for us in order to grow us and to mature us and to conform us more into the image of His Son. So basically, counting it all joy is not referring to the results. Uh, it's referring to the results and not the situation. In other words, you're going through a very difficult time. You don't have to smile and be clapping and cheering because something horrible has happened to you in your life or you've lost a loved one or whatever. Yay, I'm so glad. That's what the Bible says. No, it's not what the Bible saying that you go through that grieving process. But when the grieving process has starting to alleviate somewhat, over a period of time, what that's going to do to you and what that's going to turn you into and create you as will be, will be a shining light. It will be used by God for His glory and for your good. That makes sense?
This would not at least, I mean, not from a worldly perspective, seem the way to have joy or gladness. But from our perspective, we'd rather, and this is to be honest, from our perspective, we'd rather life be nothing but comfort and convenience. I mean, look at the American church today. It's all built around comfort and convenience. The more that we can make it just like your worldly little life, the happier you're going to be in church and the more money you'll give. That's right. They don't want an unpopular church with an unpopular message. They want to produce comfort and convenience for everyone. No resistance, no pain, no saying no, but a gimme, gimme path to the celestial city which produces nothing more than a saggy, pudgy, and spiritually deformed life. And that's not what we want. Especially in the days we live in today. Not in any day, but today, we do need mature believers operating on the battlefield. 1 Peter 1.6 says, In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved, you've been grieved by various trials. That the genuineness of your faith being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, okay, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. 1 Timothy 1.19 says, Having faith and a good conscience, which some have rejected concerning the faith, have suffered shipwreck, of whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I delivered to Satan, so that they may learn not to blaspheme. See, these guys suffered the wrong way. They suffered a shipwreck. They didn't take suffering the way God has intended it. Female Christian author, musician, and artist, Johnny Erickson Tata, and you guys are probably familiar with her ministry, a woman who was paralyzed from the shoulders down when she was 17 years of age. Imagine 17-year-old teenage girl, literally in the early prime of her life, and you know she liked horseback rides, she could do all the things that kids do, right? As she dove into the Chesapeake Bay after misjudging the shallowness of the water and fractured her cervical vertebrae, and she became a quadriplegic. Just like that. Boom. During Tata's two years of rehabilitation, according to her, um, her autobiography, she experienced anger, depression, suicidal thoughts, and religious doubts. I mean, this is real. This is real. However, during occupational therapy, she learned to paint with a brush between her teeth and began selling her artwork. To date, she has written over 40 books, recorded several musical albums, and starred in an autobiographical movie of her life and is an advocate for people with disabilities. She made some, uh, she, she's made some pretty powerful quotes. One, she says about God. She says, He has chosen not to heal me, but to hold me. The more intense the pain, the closer His embrace. Then she says, maybe the truly handicapped people are the ones that don't need God as much. Then she says, suffering provides the gym equipment on which my faith can be exercised. That's God's perspective. Not our own perspective. Could you imagine? In the life, she's very fruitful. I greatly respect her. James 1.12 says, Blessed is the man who endures 
temptation. For when he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Romans chapter 5 verse 3 says, Not only so, but we also, what? Glory in our sufferings. Because we know that suffering produces, what? Perseverance. The suffering is what enables us to persevere. Comfort doesn't. Pain does. It causes us to continue to move forward. Perseverance, then character. And then what? Character, then hope, not hopelessness. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Interestingly enough, the Latin word for this kind of suffering is the word passio, which means suffering or enduring. The use was also extended to the sufferings of the martyrs. Jesus said in his word, actually I think it was one seven, if I'm not mistaken, he says, but you shall receive power uh, when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be my martyrs. Really his witnesses, but the correct rendering of the word would be martyrs to me in Jerusalem in all of Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. It's important to understand that your pain has meaning. I know we've talked about this before, but there is a reason why you go through the things that you go through. And if you think it's something, it's, it's how the world thinks, where it's just luck or bad luck or these things are happening to me, you're going to lose your witness, you're going to lose your testimony, and you're going to blaspheme God among the Gentiles. You're going to lose your witness because you act just like the world. There's nothing more um, painful than see a Christian act just like they haven't been saved. Right? But they got hellfire insurance because they can recite all the verses perfectly. Something we need to take a check on our own spirit. Listen, Paul understood pain. He understood pain and its benefits. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, he says, I've been in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely, been exposed to death again and again. Five times I've received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. 25, verse, he says three times, I was beaten with rods once. I was stoned three times. I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I've been constantly on the move. I've been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my own countrymen, in danger from Gentiles, in, the danger, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at the sea, and in danger from false brothers. I have labored and toiled and have gone without sleep. I've known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food. I've been cold and naked. And besides everything else, I face daily the pressure of my concern for all the churches. This is the Christian life. You say, ah, no, that's not it. You know, um, then you're deceived because a life as a Christian is continual battling. It really is. It is continually suffering. But you know, there's going to come a day and an hour when it's over. All this pain is going to be gone. All the suffering is going to be gone. It's all going to go. And you're going to be with Christ forever. What, a, what, a, what an incredible deliverance. I mean, I think in one way God has, 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 has created this world for Christians to be hurt. And to be in pain. And at times be miserable. Because it's just going to make heaven that much more enjoyable. Go to the dentist. Sit in the dentist chair. You know, how many of us enjoy getting our teeth drilled? 
But when you're done, you certainly enjoy your pearly whites. You know what I mean? There is an end to all this, which is good. I like the Puritan William Perkins writes, this may seem to be an unusual course for God to take in order to confirm and to energize His servant in zeal and courage, to strike him with extreme fear, indeed to astonish and to amaze him. Yet it is clear that this is the way He takes it teaches us that all true ministers, especially those appointed to speak to the, the greatest words in His church, in the consciousness of the greatness of their function, even a sense of amazement and astonishment, full admiration for God's glory and greatness. Then He says this. This is the part important. This is important. Whenever God called any of His servants to any great work, He first drove them into the sense of fear and amazement. When a man is called, when a man is called, it is a work little less than that by which God calls a sinner from sin to repentance. Think about that for just a moment. What he's saying is that when God gets ready to use you, right? He's going to apply the same methods of, of evangelism that were applied to you to show your absolute undone state and your fear of God and your absolute amazement at His justice and His holiness brought you in, but first He ground you to powder in, more, in order to make you truly appreciate what was given to you and the tremendous responsibility and accountability to take the message of His Son to the world. He says God first casts down the sinner before He gives him grace or any sense of His love in Christ. In the same way, He first humbles and casts down the prophet in the sight of God's majesty and His own misery misery before he honors him with a commission to preach his word to his people. It's God's way, brothers and sisters. It is the way of the Lord. Uh, my second point here, if we don't make it through, I do have a stopping point. So I've got my timer. Knowing the word instead of acting like the, the world. This is huge. I mean, knowing uh, that the testing of your faith produces patience. And how would you know this if you have not read it? I mean, this is interesting because the Scriptures, the Word of God, show us what, you know, what our lives are to look like, how we're to believe, how we're to live, who we're to trust in. All these things are there in the Word of God. This is the knowing, knowing portion, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. There's a knowledge there. Hosea 4, 6 says, My people are destroyed for their lack of knowledge. And when you are being tested or you're enduring affliction, we would do well to understand this, to know this. This is the whole point that's grown absent in the church today. There's an absence of this knowing, this knowledge that this pain I'm going through, these tribulations are of God and there's a purpose behind it. We have this knowledge, but without the knowledge, what happens? We get destroyed. We shipwreck our faith, or we remain babies right up until our 80s. Rhymed. <laughs> we'll be destroyed by our pain, persecution, rejection, or any other various trials without the proper knowledge that God ordains such things for our good and His glory. If we miss this, our trails become meaningless and our perseverance disappears and we fall into despair. Paul said in Philippians 4.11, he says this, For I have learned 
in whatever state I am to be content. He had learned. He didn't say, oh, you know, I just I became a Christian and now I'm just content in everything. There's a training. There's a learning. There's a, there's a, there's a, uh, uh, you want to basically think this out. You want the knowledge. You want to learn. How can I learn? Because if you don't learn it, you'll repeat it. Trust me. You'll just repeat the same things and you always go down the path of least resistance. Testing of your faith. You're falling into these things, it's really this whole idea when it says fall into, it's an unexpected, unexpected. You know you got something coming that's coming up bad? I'm talking about the unexpected tragedies that just come on you out of nowhere. These strange things that happen and how we're to deal with them. James 5, 7 says, Therefore, be patient, brethren, under the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, waiting patiently for it until it receives the early and latter rain. These types of things develop self-control. Do you have self-control? Brothers and sisters, do you have self-control? Do you struggle with that? I struggle with self-control. You know? Um, are we patient people? I'm not talking about just patient like sitting around waiting for someone to come to your house or waiting for your wife to come out of the bathroom. What I'm saying is this, is that the patience in which, which is connected to perseverance... This is what he's talking about. It's the persevering patience. It's like, oh, how much more this can I take before I blow up? You know what I mean? It's that kind of, that's what he's dealing with. It's an operational patience uh, in the midst of, mingled with your perseverance. What he's saying is be patient through that suffering. And the only way you're going to have patience is if you understand um, the bottom line of why the suffering is taking place. We don't want to be destroyed by it, but we want to come out of that. Embracing the process. I'm going to skip through a few things here. Uh, go right to the last point. Embracing the process with our eyes on Christ. Um, the only way we can embrace it and persevere is not because we're, we're good people or we've got good just self-government or good self-control or good discipline. There's a lot of worldly people out there that have these principles in place and do very well in this life. I mean, they're not going to do well in the next life unless they're saved. But the reality is, is that it goes beyond that. Like our ability to focus is always gonna, going to be um, where our focus is. Yes, I remember I seen a painting when I was in Scotland. I lived in Scotland for two years, and I was walking down the street, and I would look in the windows. It was neatest things, and I saw this big painting, and the painting was this. It looked like uh, uh, someone in like maybe like a, some sort of like a preacher's garb. It looked like maybe like a priest. I couldn't tell, but it was definitely a man of God, right? And he's holding this cross like this. And his eyes are like all veiny and bugged out. Like he's doing everything in his power to keep his eyes on the cross. And all around these, this cross was like lustful women. And all these things that, that would, 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 um, would be the challenges that he would not want to let his eyes look upon. These were the pulling forces of his affections. But it showed how his eyes were literally bugging out in the world as he kept his eyes upon the cross. And it was just a good illustration um, of, of how the Christian life works. That we keep our eyes focused upon Christ. We look to Christ as we're going through all of this uh, tribulation and issues and suffering 
in our lives. He says, but let patience, endurance, or perseverance have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. These are true riches. Very similar to Proverbs 13, 12. Hope deferred, or the word deferred means postponed, makes the heart sick. But a longing fulfilled is a tree of life. It's in the deferment, right? It's in the postponement is where our metal is tested and when we truly come to life and who we are is revealed. It's that point in our deference when nothing's going on, nothing's happening, we can barely hold on, but we do, and then the longing, longing is fulfilled and it becomes a tree of life. It becomes a reward, something that we can rejoice in and enjoy with a clean conscience. Every possible trial to the child of God is a masterpiece of strategy of the captain of his salvation for his good. Remember, faith endures trials. Faith understands temptations. Faith obeys the word. Faith produces doers. Faith harbors no prejudice. Faith displays itself in its works. Faith acts wisely. Faith produces separation from the world and submission to God. Faith waits patiently for the coming of the Lord. Through trouble and trials, it stifles complaining. Paul declares, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed to us. Romans 8.18, and again he says, For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, because it's going to go away, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. Well, we do not look at the things which we see, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. That's the Christian life. Second Timothy chapter 4, 7 and 8 says this. Paul said, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord the righteous judge will award to me on that day. And not only me, by the way, but also to all who have longed for His appearing. What makes us long for His appearing? What makes us long for it? This world does. This nasty, fallen, corrupt, apostate, perverted, blasphemous world makes me long to be with Christ forever. That's true. Hebrews 12, 2, finishing verse. Looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher. Okay, so you can all take a big sigh of relief of our faith. For for the joy that was set before Him, endured, there's your endurance right there, endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus endured for us. He is, the endurance that He endured will be granted to us freely. God sees endurance, His perseverance, everything that He accomplished credited to our account freely before God. This doesn't mean that you can just go on and do whatever you want because if that's the truth, you may want to check your heart and see if you're born again. Someone that's truly converted and born again who has the Spirit of God in them will not want... Yeah, we'll sin. We'll fall into sin. Don't get me wrong. I'm not preaching that. But there's going to be a, a monitor in there 
that holds you accountable and deeply convicts you to the point where you repent. So, let's pray. Father, we thank you for our time together this morning. Thank you for your word. I thank you for um, our church, Lord. Thank you for all the men and women that are here and the children, Lord. Um, we're so grateful that we have a place to come on Sunday morning and what you're doing here uh, in this little assembly for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.